Let's take our Bibles, please, and open them to Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. Matthew 20, please, today. There's a sermon outline in your bulletin, too. I'd invite you to take it out, maybe take some notes today. You'll find that on page 1530 in that book rack Bible there in front of you, but maybe you've got a Kindle, a tablet, a smartphone that has the Scripture on it, and find your way to Matthew 20, please. All of us have heard about an Achilles tendon, you know that tendon that runs from your heel up the back of your leg? If you're an athlete that likes to run and jump, you're always cautious about what might happen to the Achilles tendon. And of course, there's that phrase, that saying about an Achilles heel, and we use that phrase to describe a vulnerability, a weakness that we might have. And and you may not know, but most of us probably do know that that phrase comes from Greek mythology. There was a character in the great Greek, uh, Homer's Iliad, that was Achilles, and Achilles was a great warrior in the battle of the Trojans. And uh, Achilles, uh, his mother uh, decided to take him down to the river and, and make him immortal when he was born. So she grabbed him by his heel and she dipped him into the river uh, stakes, stakies I think it is, or sticks. And, and as she pulls him out, of course, everything according to the, the Greek mythology is now he's invincible and immortal for the rest of his life. But when Paris, the Trojan warrior, goes to fight uh, Achilles, he aims at the one part of his body that is vulnerable, the part that his mother, Thetis, held as she dumped him or dipped him into the, the river. And so he shoots him in the heel. And, of course, he dies. That's in the Greek mythology. But none of us really need Greek mythology to inform us that we also have weaknesses. We have points of weaknesses in our lives. There are things that fall short. And in our walk with Christ, uh, there are specific areas where we are vulnerable at times. And I think the text we're going to look at today, in in a really powerful way, gives to us three common weaknesses or vulnerabilities that all of us as Christ followers, if you are a Christ follower, follower, are going to face at one time or another in your life. And along with these vulnerabilities, these points of weakness, I would like to point out to you some ways that we can guard against them right out of the text. And so if you have your Bibles open now to Matthew 20, uh, let's see what the Bible has to say beginning in verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Then when the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Indeed, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. These three vulnerabilities we're going to look at this morning, I think two are very obvious and one is a little less so. And the one that is less so is actually the first one, beginning in verses 17 through 19. And I'm going to suggest to you there that there's a vulnerability uh, when, whenever we have a lack of spiritual awareness. A lack of spiritual awareness makes us very vulnerable in our Christian experience, our Christian life. So Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem where he'll be delivered up to the religious leaders and condemned to death and handed over to the Romans who will mock, flog, and crucify him. But notice at the end of verse 19, this doesn't end in defeat, but it actually ends in the climactic victory of Christ being raised to life. But I want to point out, to the, fa- point out the fact that if you're looking at this text, it tells us that Jesus actually came and took his disciples aside. See that in verse 17? He took them aside. This is an intentional teaching moment. This is an intentional informational moment. Jesus wants them to know something. He wants them to know he's going to die. Now, if you've been studying the book of Matthew with us, we've been in this book for quite a while, and there's a lot of time that happens between these texts. But let me just remind you that in chapter 16 and in chapter 17, Jesus comes flat out to say, Guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Twice already, this would be the third time. And if you count what he said about Jonah the prophet, you know, being in the belly of, uh, in the, in the belly of the fish for three days and then coming out, this was a sign of Jesus, then this was also the fourth time that Jesus would have alerted his disciples that he was going to die. Now, the reason I point that out to you is that it's interesting that after Jesus gives this detailed look at what's about to take place, there is zero response from his disciples. I think that's curious. I mean, there's no comment. There's nothing. It's like crickets. I mean, in Mark chapter 10, when you read this story, the same thing happens. Nothing, nothing is said. In Luke's rendition of this story, in Luke 18, 31 through 34, it says that the disciples didn't understand any of this. They were confused. There was still a, a fog that was over them. I mean, Jesus drops this bomb about what's going to happen, and there's no response. It's kind of like the way I would feel it might be like if, for example, you had, you know, some kind of illness you were going through, you weren't feeling really well, so you go to the doctor, and the doctor takes some tests, and he, and he you know, tells you, hey, you know, we'll, we'll see, I don't know, I can't figure out what's going on with you, but I'm going to draw some blood, and we're going to put you in some scans, and blah, 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 and then all of a sudden you get a phone call, and the doctor wants to see you. And so you go down to the doctor's office, and you come back, and, you know, it would be like your husband sitting on the couch when you walk in, and he says, hey, how did it go at the doc? And, and you say, well, I can't believe it, but I've got cancer, and I've got six months to live, he tells me. And the, the husband says, hey, what are we doing for dinner tonight? <laughs> now, that would be so weird Or if there was nothing said, it would be even more weird, I mean, to think about that it just went right over. And this is what happens right here in this text. There's absolutely no response to the biggest news that Jesus could possibly give. And I think that that's that's really curious. You know, sometimes 
uh, I find myself kind of running around and doing things in ministry and, uh, and forgetting that we need to stop and listen. We need to listen. Now, if you want to guard against this kind of vulnerability in your life, spiritually being unaware, let me just give you a suggestion. You could write this down. If you want to guard against this kind of vulnerability, we should listen to what Jesus says and consider the implications. We should listen to what he says. We need to take time to stop and listen. We need to pour in. Once in a while, when I'm in a hurry, I'll say to somebody as I'm walking through the church, this has happened a number of times, hey, how you doing? And they'll say, honestly, not so good. And I'll say, great, good, good to see you. Glad you're, you know, and it's, ah. You know, I stop myself. And sometimes it's actually happened where I wasn't in the moment and thought about it later. It was like this flashback, this horrific moment that I literally didn't hear what the person is, was saying to me. That's crazy stuff, but that's what happens in our lives. And that's what's happening to the disciples right here. They've got some other things on their mind, and because of that, they are spiritually unaware. Now, I hate to break it to any of us who might be having this trouble, but if we're not reading God's Word daily, if we're not putting Scripture in front of us, if we're not, if we're not letting the words of Jesus or the Word of God penetrate our hearts in a regular way, then can I suggest to you that we're not listening very carefully to Jesus? And we may be very vulnerable to a lack of spiritual understanding in our lives. I mean, it's very simple to go through our lives. We get up, we rush out the door, we fight the traffic, we get to work or we get to school or wherever it is that we spend most of our day. And then we go through all that and then we get back in our cars and we go home and we're just trying to relax. And all of a sudden, the end of the day, and we haven't really stopped to listen for what Jesus has for us. And here in Matthew 20, Jesus is letting his disciples and us know of the nature of his mission. This is what he came to do. Look again at verse 19, that he will be, verse 18, he will be betrayed by the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. Then they'll be turned over, he'll be turned over to the Gentiles, where he'll be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and then risen to life. This is a summary statement of the passion of Christ. Amazing, betrayed, condemned to die, mocked, flogged, crucified, raised to life. This is the big reveal. And by the way, let's not forget as followers of Jesus that this really is the big reveal for us too. We need to think about this all the time, that Jesus Christ came, He was crucified, He died for our sins. We forget this. There are people in our midst today who are fighting addictions, alcohol addictions, pornography addictions, drug addictions. There are some of us today that are fighting depression in our lives. There's issues going down in our lives that we desperately need to be reminded. We need to hear Jesus say, listen, I'm dying for your sins. I've died for your sins. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is it not? That we come into a place like this and we celebrate the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again from the grave. That is the big reveal to the Christian life. And yet so oftentimes it goes It goes under the radar for us. It's funny, all the things that Jesus revealed to us that kind of, you know, run off us like uh, water off our backs sometimes. I mean, think about what Jesus said at the end of Matthew. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you, right? And I'm with you to the end of the age. It's a beautiful way that Matthew finishes his gospel work. And yet, I talk to Christians, people that are Christ followers all the time who have not yet been baptized. We're not listening very well or have not been discipled or we're not discipling people. 
You know, Jesus' command was that we would disciple others. That command wasn't given just to the 12, and now we're sitting back and we're letting everybody else do the work. We are called into his work. We are called into his mission. And by the way, that's also a rehearsal in our own hearts for dying to ourselves because if I read my Bible right, Jesus doesn't invite us into his mission without us also taking a cross and dying to ourselves too, right? That's the message of the gospel. Think about receiving power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us so that we can be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. When was the last time we witnessed to anyone about our faith in Christ Jesus? There are some of us, I'm sure, today that have never really spoken up or never really testified of what Jesus has done in our lives. Might I suggest that that's a vulnerability in our lives that we're just spiritually unaware. Jesus has made it possible for us and we're just sort of tuned out. Or think about John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? <laughs> that was weak. By your love for each other, John 13, 35. Jesus said, everyone will know you belong to me when you show love to each other. And yet, what oftentimes people see among Christians is a lot of bickering, fighting, gossip going on. We're not listening very well. The point I'm trying to make here is very simple. It's really a point that just simply says that what Jesus gives to us here is a big reveal that not only shows us why he came, but is also sort of a rehearsal for our own sense of dying to self in a daily way. I've been reading through a book, uh, Jim Cerna. I see him sitting out there in the congregation this morning. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Jim gave me this book. It's called... uh, I am N. Okay, we'll put it on the screen so you can see a little better picture of it. That's an that's Arabic letter N, uh, which stands for Nazarene. I've got a friend that works in the Middle East as a missionary, and last time he was through the United States, he gave me this little coaster that I could put on my desk, and uh, it's, it seems a little weird to do this, but I mean, you know, I could put a cold drink on this little thing, and this is actually a symbol that, that uh, extremists, Muslim extremists use to identify Christians so if you f- are found out to be a Christian in some places of the world, Pakistan, Turkey, you know, Iraq, Iran, very, various places throughout the Middle East and many other places of the world, the Philippines, wherever there are Muslim extremists, perhaps even here in America, uh, but in those places specifically, if you're found out to be a Christ follower, uh, this is painted over the doorway of your house. It's actually like this. It's the letter N. It stands for Nazarene. You're identified with Christ. And it's very likely someone's going to come back and burn your house down. Or take your life. So I've been reading these little stories once a day. By the way, Voice of the Martyrs put this book out. And there's a little app somebody showed me after the service. This is really cool. You can download a free app from Voices of, Mar- of the Martyrs. And uh, every day you can hear an inspirational story just like this book shows about what God's doing in the world uh, through people that are willing to be courageous and brave and standing uh, up for their faith in Christ. And, uh, and then there's a little way to pray for the nation that, uh, that where all this stuff is going on. So I just want to encourage you with that. But I was reading a couple of these stories last night, just kind of rehearsing and thinking about this idea of spiritually being aware. And there's this one story of a, of a woman named Golnaz. She's in Pakistan, and she worked in a little medical center, and a, and a man came in and, and made sexual advances toward her, and she slapped him uh, because of it, and this made him feel very disrespected. Unfortunately, this was a young Christian woman in Pakistan, and the man that uh, she slapped who took sexual advances toward her was uh, a Muslim man who believed that uh, he should not be treated this way, and so he came back to that clinic and he poured acid on her face and her body, 
And uh, through the good help of some Christian ministries in that area, they did surgeries and helped her back to health. Uh, Golnaz and her husband live in a rundown neighborhood with open sewage in the streets and garbage piled everywhere. And looking for needs around her, Golnaz began witnessing to young girls, and she even started a small Bible study for them. And when Christians gave Golnaz and her husband a home in a much nicer area, the couple instead gave the keys to a Pakistan evangelist who was forced to live on the run after radical Muslims targeted his ministry. The home would have been very comfortable for the couple to live in, this book says, or they could have sold it for the money they needed, but they figured the evangelist needed the home more than they did. The generosity and joy they express in the wake of pain they endure are the inspiration of anyone who faces even the least bit of persecution. I think that that's amazing, don't you? I mean, that's amazing love. That's, that's turning away from bitterness and actually looking toward the joy of what is to follow in our Christian experience there was another little story in here that touched my heart. It was a little story about a, a young boy named Hussein, and he was from Turkey. And he had met Christ as a nine-year-old boy in a church where his father and he had attended. And, and he got so excited about following Christ that he was able to uh, procure a little cross that he could wear. And he was so excited to wear this cross when he went to school. Little did uh, little Hussein know that when he went to school wearing this cross, he was going to become a target of all those who thought that the cross was offensive to them. And so there were, uh, in, in this part of Turkey, where there is mostly Muslim faith, it's, it's illegal in some places even to profess to be a Christian. And little Hussein, all he wanted to do was share what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And every, in, in every class he went, he was taunted, and eventually he was beat up over and over and over. Uh, finally, at the end of his little story, just a few pages of these, but let me just give the little punchline to this whole thing. His father came on campus one day and saw that there was a teacher actually beating his son. And the teacher railed at the father saying, don't you know that to be a Christian is illegal? And, and he said, isn't beating someone illegal also? And they took the little boy out of school and they found another school where he was accepted a little bit better but still under some persecution. It says of his father, Hakim and his wife, uh, they transferred their son to another school and then uh, another before they found one where Hussein's experience experienced fewer attacks. But even as an 11-year-old boy, Hussein remains steadfast in his faith. He says, I quote, I will never return to Islam, even if persecution continues, he said. Quote, Christ said he would suffer for me. It's okay if I suffer for him. And we should be happy to suffer for him. The Lord is with me. That's a 10-year-old that's a boy. I don't know, that's, that's inspirational stuff. I think that maybe Jesus, when he lowered the boom and shared what was really going on with his disciples, was in some way normalizing the way the Christian life ought to be lived. It ought to be lived in a sense that we are not, uh, we are not going to be accepted in this world. 2 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul writes very clearly. He says, in fact, everyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer what? Anybody know? persecution. Boy, we almost whispered that, didn't we? We don't even like saying that very loudly. We'll suffer persecution. Now, the Bible is filled with stories and reminders to us that this is the story of our lives. And yet think about what is written about Jesus in Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live. Christ lives in me. In the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the rehearsing of our own lives, beloved. We should normalize suffering. And I don't know, I'm just going to suggest this morning, I think we're coming to a time in history, not only in the world, but even in America, where you stand up for your faith in Christ and there's going to be some major consequences coming down. That day is coming soon. It's already here. And how are we going to stand? I think it may be one of the best things that will ever happen to the church of Jesus Christ in the West. Because everywhere you read in the, around the world where Christians are being persecuted, there is such a pure and vibrant church where people are experiencing the joy of the Holy Spirit in their lives like never before. You know why? Because it's normal to be under persecution. So spiritually aware is really... Uh, or being spiritually unaware is a vulnerability. It's an Achilles heel that some of us have. And if we want to guard against that, we need to listen carefully to Jesus. And translating that just simply means we need to spend time daily in his word, meditating on what he says, thinking about the implications of what he says, and not brushing them off so easily. A second vulnerability I see in this text comes to us in verses 20 through 24, and that is that we become vulnerable when we have a preoccupation with self-promotion, self-promotion. Now, this is always a scene that's a little humorous to me by how uh, uh, preposterous it is. I mean, can you imagine this mom coming with her sons in tow asking for this favor. These are two of the disciples of Jesus. And she's pulling his disciples along with her. And by the way, uh, scholars believe that this was probably Salome. She's found in other portions of the gospel writings. And Salome may have very well been, according to scholars, the, the sister or the sister-in-law of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So we're talking about actually these disciples maybe being related to Jesus by marriage, by the marriage of their mother uh, to, and, and to whoever she married as a relationship to Mary. Now that's, that's kind of interesting, but when I, when I look at that, it kind of all of a sudden makes sense because when your family, you expect some, you know, some special things, right? I mean, if you're connected to somebody by family, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm with them. I'm family, Right? And you could just see this mother. Let's go back into the text again. Verse, uh, verse 21, she bows down, which is a, a picture of I'm, I want to come and ask for something. And so Jesus says, what is it that you want? And she says, and you can almost hear her in her little Jewish way, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Sorry, that's the best I can do. But anyway, <laughs> you can just see this little lady just parading her sons in. But the text actually reveals something that's even more interesting in that Jesus responds using the word you in the plural form. So he's actually speaking to the sons when he says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink, you, plural, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We'll stop right there for just a moment and let's consider what the way we can guard ourselves against Uh, this kind of vulnerability. Uh, Let me suggest to you in verse 22 that we should be careful about what we ask Jesus to do. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I pray, when I listen to my prayers, if if I'm conscious of what I'm really asking for, 
the underlining tone of my prayer is, Lord, if you could work this out, it's going to be way better for my life. You find yourself that way? That really what drives us so many times in our prayers is getting a better thing, a better deal, a better relationship, a better, happier, whatever. And maybe that just reveals the shallowness sometimes of my prayers, but if I'm honest, I have to admit that a lot of times my prayer life focuses around making Larry's life better. And that's really not where our prayer life should be. We should be careful about what we ask of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here, they're asking for something that they really have no idea. I wonder if Jesus sometimes would want to lean over a little bit and whisper into my heart, Larry, Larry hey, psst, you don't know what you're asking for here. And this is what happened with the disciples. And it's even more curious that when Jesus asked them, can you drink of the cup? I am, by the way, what does the cup stand for? The cup is... Is, is what symbolizes judgment. It symbolizes uh, a dreadful experience. You remember when Jesus was in the garden, he prayed, let this cup pass from me. But it's interesting, can you drink of the cup I'm going to drink? And what do they say? We can. <laughs> That's pretty bold. Jesus even honors their passionate response by saying, well, okay, guys, yeah, in a sense, you are going to drink of this cup. There is going to be suffering in the offering for you two. These are James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You know what happened to James? Acts chapter 12 tells us that James was the first martyr of the Christian church. He was killed by Herod. <laughs> How long after this little statement was made? And then John, the apostle, we don't uh, John was not apparently uh, killed, not martyred for his faith, but we know from history that John was exiled to a little island called Patmos, where he probably died a very lonely man. When you look at John's end and James' end, uh, there was no easy life for either of them. Certainly for John, no easy retirement on the golf course for that guy. Island of Patmos, just a bunch of rock and an amazing revelation of Jesus Christ, which he wrote to us, wrote to the church we have right here in our New Testament Bible, the book of Revelation. Not revelations, but revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we are in, in debt to these men, but they also suffered. And Jesus told them they would. But to give them a place was not his. This was the role of the Heavenly Father and it's interesting, you go back to chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus promised that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's like the first moment they hear about thrones, all they can think about is thrones. All they can think about is some, you know, huge, there's, they're obsessed with having some sort of authority. And that's because one of, the, one of the problems, one of the vulnerabilities that all of us have, beloved, is that we like to promote ourselves. It's in all of our DNA. We like to be first. Nobody likes to be last. We like to be first in line, first at the bank, first, 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 first. We, we, don't, we, we, like, put, we, we like to be first on the roll call. We like to be first on the, on the grading system. We, we want to be first, and we work hard to be first. And in some environments, of course, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to goodness and, and even greatness, but 
But remind us, be reminded, beloved, of what the Scripture says to us in 1 Peter 5, 6, also in James 4, 6, that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And of course, that's a quotation from Proverbs 3, 34. It's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's why Peter goes on to say in that fifth chapter of the book of 1 Peter, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may lift you up at the proper time. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? I mean, it's as if what we need to be doing in our Christian life is not so much putting ourselves forward, but letting God do the work He wants to do and, and waiting on Him, being humble in our hearts. A lack of an awareness, a preoccupation with self. There's a third vulnerability I see here as we come near to the end. In verses 25 through 28, Jesus pulls His disciples together, and, and I believe He shows them that there's a vulnerability to, uh, to being reluctant to serve, a reluctance to serve. And, and so He says, um, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That little phrase there, uh, that's in the vernacular. Our vernacular would be saying, push their weight around. Have you ever known anybody like that? Push their weight around? Hey, don't talk to me like that. I'm the boss. Get in line. I, I'm your uplink. You know, it's just like the food chain, you know, pay grade, all these things. We just trivialize people and throw them under the bus. Jesus says, that's the way the world is. He says, look at verse 26, not so with you. Listen, beloved, this is not to be the part of the Christian life. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. By the way, the word servant there, diakonoi, uh, which is the, just a general word for servant, but then he goes so far as to say, who wants to be first must be your slave, doulos, abject slavery. I mean, the way we should think of ourselves around our brothers and sisters in Christ and those that we're trying to reach for Christ. We should see those people as people that we can serve and in some cases even be their slave. Now, I don't mean to do things that are immoral or ungodly, but in every way that we possibly can to serve people that we're trying to reach or people that are our brothers and sisters in Christ, this should be the mark of the Christian's life. So, if you want to guard against this vulnerability of not wanting to serve, here's what we need. We need to follow Jesus' example. Because what does Jesus say here? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. He says, you want to follow, you want to get this straight? Just follow me. And I'm about to do it. Remember I just told you I'm going to be crucified, condemned to death, and I'm going to die for the sins of the world? Follow me. Follow me. You know, I've been in ministry for 36 years, which is certainly by no means a record, but I've seen and observed a few things. And here's a big takeaway that I've learned, and I'm just going to pass it on to you today. Here's what I've learned about ministry and people for 36 years. People love to show up, but they don't like to set up, and they don't like to clean up. <laughs> Such a simple axiom. People love to show up, they don't like to set up or clean up. You know, it's funny, when, when you do this big activity or something, I remember doing youth ministry, big activity, Struggle to get people there ahead of time. Okay, we got it. Pull it off. Okay, it's amazing. And then when it's time to clean up, everybody scatters like bugs under light. I mean, it's just like everyone's gone. That's our human nature, by the way. 
And that has to be overturned by the Spirit of God in our lives. The Spirit of God in our lives tells us that we need to be like Jesus, not like the world. We need to not push our weight around. We work hard on this in our ministry. You know, we train pastors and leaders. And just, we need to all go on record and be accountable to this. As leaders, we are called to be servants first. I hope that's what you see in leaders in our church. I hope that's what you see in pastors. I hope anybody that wears the label leader, anyone that stands in front of a group of people, I hope that what you see in them is humble leadership. Because if you don't, they're not really... They're not really aspiring to what Jesus said. Right here, Jesus said, if you really want to be great in the kingdom, you need to be a servant of all. You need to be a slave. But that's not the way the world is. And sometimes the church follows more the way of the world than Jesus' words himself. So, you know, pray for your leaders. Pray for me. We're, none of us are immune to being vulnerable. Remember, we got this Achilles heel. We like to be first. We're reluctant to serve. There are things that are just you know, below us and we shouldn't have to do those things anymore and all that is nonsense because what we're called to do is to be servants. And that's for all of us, by the way, not just for those who wear the badge of leadership if God would be gracious enough to bring you into a place of influence. It's for every one of us that we'd be called leaders first, we would be called servants. For everyone in the body of Christ that we'd be known as people who serve the needs of others. And I love how Jesus wraps this up. He says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is a picture of substitution. This is Christ's substitution for my life. It's His death for mine. And this is the glory of the gospel. You cannot work for it. You can only receive it by faith. What Jesus has done for you, He's done completely. And His love for you is so great. His love for us is so great. We have such an amazing Savior. And if we could just all lean into that a little bit more with the reality of this is what He's called us to, maybe we could have a bigger impact in our workplaces. Maybe we could have a bigger impact in our culture, in our community. Because there's a place where people are serious about serving others. You know what makes Three Crosses a great church? Not dynamic leadership, not clever programming, not anything that might be attributed to a person's intuition or ability. What makes Three Crosses a great church is that there are a lot of servants here. And I'm praying that the Lord will raise up more. Would you join me in that? And this morning, if you've never opened your heart to Jesus... Maybe the Lord has been gracious to show you your need for Christ, your need for Him. And right here, right now, that exchange can happen by faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Shall we pray?